Hey everyone, it's Zara here. As you all know, The Internet Work is a learner-generated podcast funded entirely by the learners that create it. You may notice our website, www.theinternetwork.com, now has a donate button. It's not intended for hungry medical students, but if you're an attending physician who enjoys our podcast, please consider a donation. All funds will go towards podcast production and distribution, website maintenance, and support of medical education research based on the podcast. Now, on to our episode. Celiac disease has been recognized for many thousands of years as a diarrheal illness with abdominal pain, but poorly understood. It was finally linked to the consumption of wheat flour after the Dutch famine of 1945 when there were bread shortages. Dr. Willem Carroll Dick noted that many of his pediatric patients with intestinal disease got significantly worse after the end of the Nazi German control of the Netherlands and the return of wheat flour to their diets. This discovery was a turning point in the understanding of celiac disease. Our understanding of celiac disease has since evolved from primarily a diarrheal disease causing malnutrition, abdominal pain, and even death to the most common gastrointestinal autoimmune disease worldwide with hundreds of extra-intestinal associations. Today, our patient has celiac disease, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled, We Wheat Again, Celiac Disease. Time for a minute physiology. The physiology of celiac disease is quite complex, so we are going to simplify it, focusing on components that have important clinical relevance. Many of you will know that gluten is implicated in celiac disease. More specifically, it is the gliadin protein within gluten that triggers the immune response. The first step in the process of inflammation is the movement of gliadin from the lumen of the small bowel into the lamina propria. Normally, in people without celiac disease, this does not occur as the enterocytes which line the lumen have tight junctions that do not let the gliadin molecule pass. In patients with celiac disease, there is dysfunction of these tight junctions as gliadin is able to pass through. The mechanism of this is not well understood, although there are a number of theories as to how this happens. Once in the lamina propria, gliadin is deaminated, meaning removal of an amino acid, by an enzyme called tissue transglutaminase, which is present ubiquitously. This allows the gliadin to be recognized by HLA-DQ2 and HLA-DQ8 molecules on antigen-presenting cells, aka APCs. These HLA-DQ2 and DQ8 haplocytes are genetically determined at the basis of the inheritability of the disease. When bound to the antigen-presenting cells, the deaminated gliadin is recognized as foreign. The antigen-presenting cells talk to T-cells and B-cells within the immune system, and 1. stimulate a cytokine response against the mucosa of the small bowel, and 2. produce antibodies. There are a number of antibodies that are produced, including anti-tissue transglutaminase, anti-TTG, anti-endomesial, which acts against a cell closely related to TTG, and deaminated gliated antibodies. Think of this as the body's way of targeting molecules responsible for causing the immune response. It is hard to visualize the pathophysiology of celiac disease without a diagram, but let's summarize the basic steps again. Gliadin is ingested and makes its way through the enterocytes into the lamina propria. The gliadin is deaminated, allowing it to bind to HLA sequences on the antigen-presenting cell. 
The antigen-presenting cell activates T-cells and B-cells, leading to small bowel inflammation and antibody production. Subsequent gliadin exposure activates these antibodies, i.e. anti-TTG, leading to further small bowel inflammation, and the process continues. Many of these molecules we have highlighted are involved in testing for the disease, which we will touch on later, including the HLA haplocytes, HLA-DQ2 and HLA-DQ8, and the three mentioned antibodies produced, anti-TTG, deaminated gliadin, and anti-endomesial antibodies. All right, now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. As mentioned in the introduction, celiac disease can present in many ways. The classical patient with celiac presents with abdominal bloating and pain along with loose stools. These patients can also have weight loss due to malabsorption of various nutrients, especially if symptoms have been prolonged. At the same time, it is important to recognize that not all patients with celiac disease will have gastrointestinal symptoms. Extraintestinal manifestations include dermatitis hepatiformis, osteoporosis from calcium malabsorption, angular stomatitis, iron deficiency anemia, elevated liver enzymes, and delay in puberty and infertility. Ethnicity, age, and gender can be used to increase or decrease your pretest probability of celiac disease. The disease is two times more common in women. In terms of ethnic backgrounds, it is most commonly affects patients of European descent, with Ireland and Finland having the highest rates worldwide. Conversely, the disease is rare in Africa and amongst African Canadians. There are two peaks of incidence of the disease, in infancy, when gluten ingestion begins, and around the third decade of life, but the diagnosis can be made at any age. As with any assessment of a patient, it starts with making sure that they are clinically stable. Check their vital signs and assess their oxygen requirements. Is the patient alert and oriented? If you are confident there is nothing to do acutely, proceed to think about how you would want to structure your history and physical exam. The two most common reasons celiac disease is suspected in hospital are chronic diarrhea and iron deficiency anemia. The differential diagnosis for chronic diarrhea is long and also includes things such as medications such as metformin and proton pump inhibitors, endocrine causes such as hyperthyroidism, inflammatory causes such as inflammatory bowel disease, malignancy, infectious causes such as small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and other malabsorptive or maldigestive causes such as pancreatic insufficiency or bile acid diarrhea. For iron deficiency anemia, the differential diagnosis includes bleeding, bleeding, and yes, bleeding. This could be from a gastrointestinal source, in the urine, or in menstruation of young females. Once blood loss is ruled out in the patient with iron deficiency anemia, assess for other causes such as celiac disease, poor oral iron intake, parasitic infection, pregnancy, or proton pump inhibitor use. It is always useful to go through the differential before seeing a patient to maximize the yield of your questions and physical exam. On history for a patient with suspicious symptoms for celiac, you want to quantify how often they pass bowel movements, and if concerned for diarrhea, how long it has been ongoing. Chronic diarrhea is defined as passing three or more stools per day for at least four weeks. It can be beneficial to try and identify the types of stool that they are passing, according to the Bristol stool chart. You need to clarify if the stools have been bloody or black, as these would lead you away from celiac disease. 
Patients with black stools, or melina, are likely experiencing an upper GI bleed and are at risk for hemodynamic instability and should prompt urgent consultation to the gastroenterology service. Other symptoms to ask for on history include abdominal pain, abdominal cramping, weight loss, and nausea. You may want to ask about associations with iron deficiency anemia such as profound fatigue, shortness of breath, presyncope, restless leg syndrome, or PICA syndrome, which is the consumption of non-nutritious substances like soil. On exam, assess the patient's general appearance. Do they look cachectic? Inspect their hands for coilinechia, which are spoon nails seen in iron deficiency anemia, or clubbing, which may be seen in inflammatory bowel disease. At the edges of the mouth, you may see angular stomatitis, which can also be due to iron deficiency anemia. Examine their conjunctiva for signs of pallor, which is common with anemia. Check their extensor surfaces for evidence of dermatitis hepatiformis. These will be seen as a red papular vesicular rash that occurs in groups commonly on the buttocks, back, and extensor surfaces of the elbows and knees. Inspect the abdomen for any scars from previous surgeries. Always palpate the abdomen for tenderness and make sure there are no signs of peritonitis. In celiac disease, you may find a bloated abdomen with hyperresidence to percussion due to mild distension of bowel loops. A digital rectal exam is always useful to exclude melina or bright red blood per rectum in patients with diarrhea or iron deficiency anemia. Start your workup with less invasive testing. A complete blood count may show signs of iron deficiency anemia with a low hemoglobin, microcytosis, and an increased red cell distribution width. Iron studies with ferritin, transferrin, transferrin saturation, and iron levels can be used to further evaluate for iron deficiency anemia with a ferritin level less than 15 nanograms per milliliter as diagnostic. If your patient has been experiencing diarrhea, it will be important to check electrolytes and creatinine, which may be abnormal if they are volume depleted. Often, patients with celiac disease will get a mild transaminitis, so liver enzymes should be ordered. Calcium and vitamin D levels also need to be included in the workup. In terms of specific blood testing for celiac disease, let's go back to molecules mentioned in the pathophysiology section. IgA antibodies against tissue transglutaminase are usually the first-line test, as they are the most sensitive, along with an IgA level to make sure that there is not a coexisting IgA deficiency. If there is an IgA deficiency, consider ordering IgG deaminated gliadin antibodies. It is important to note the patients need to be consuming gluten for these antibody tests to be positive. If they are not, they may be falsely negative. Ideally, patients will have been consuming gluten for at least eight weeks when tested. While positive antibodies certainly make the diagnosis of celiac disease likely, in adults, endoscopy is needed to confirm the diagnosis. Endoscopy may even be performed in patients with negative serology if your suspicion of celiac is high. Patients will need to undergo upper endoscopy with duodenal biopsies for histology. Positive biopsies will demonstrate intraepithelial lymphocytes, crypt hyperplasia, and villus atrophy. The Marsh-Ober-Huber classification is used to grade endoscopic findings. Again, there may be no findings on biopsy if a patient is adhering to a gluten-free diet. For patients who are adhering to a gluten-free diet and you want to evaluate for celiac disease, testing for HLA-DQ2 and HLA-DQ8 could be performed. This gene is present in almost all patients with celiac disease, 
but also approximately 20 to 40% of the healthy population. Therefore, a negative result can be useful for essentially ruling out celiac disease, but a positive value is not very helpful. Otherwise, a gluten challenge may be indicated for the diagnosis. Currently, the main component of treatment is adhering to a gluten-free diet. This means avoiding food containing wheat, rye, and barley. In most cases, patients' symptoms should improve, their antibody titers will decrease, and they will have endoscopic healing. Some people fail to respond to this diet initially. They can be symptomatic with persistently positive antibodies. Remember, in the overwhelming majority of these cases, the patient is still consuming gluten, whether they know it or not. Sifting through their diet with the help of a dietitian can identify culprit foods. Interestingly, Health Canada does not require foods to be 100% gluten-free to be labeled as such. They just have to contain less than 20 parts per million. Often, patients not responding well to the initial gluten-free diet may also be asked to try a period avoiding products labeled as, quote, gluten-free, quote. There is a tiny subset of patients with celiac disease that will have persistent positive serology and symptoms even with a strict dietary intervention. These cases are termed refractory celiac disease and require expert consultation. If patients are still symptomatic despite their antibodies decreasing significantly or becoming negative, you need to go back to your differential diagnosis. There is likely something else causing the symptoms. Things such as irritable bowel syndrome, chronic pancreatitis, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and microscopic colitis may need to be evaluated for. Other points in management include replacing nutrition deficiencies such as iron, folate, calcium, vitamin D, and B12. Ordering an outpatient DEXA scan to look for osteoporosis should also be performed. What about patients who are asymptomatic? Should this cohort be treated? The answer is probably yes. These patients are still at risk for complications of celiac disease, such as iron deficiency anemia and osteoporosis. It is also important to mention here that celiac disease is associated with small bowel lymphoma, called EATL, enteropathy-associated T-cell lymphoma, small bowel adenocarcinoma, and development of other autoimmune disease. Some clinicians believe that the risk of developing these diseases can be reduced in patients adhering to a strict gluten-free diet although there is little evidence to support this. There is ongoing research looking at other treatments for celiac disease, such as gluten-specific proteases, the role of IL-15, and even a vaccine. The closest novel therapy to being on the market is a medication called larazotide. This is a protein that is a tight junction regulator and helps close the loose junctions within the small bowel that allow gliatin to enter the lamina propria in patients with celiac disease. As of February 12, 2021, the drug is currently in a phase three clinical trial. Thank you for listening to today's episode on celiac disease. This episode was written by Dr. Connor Bell, an internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Kuram Khan, gastroenterology, and Dr. Leslie Martin, general internal medicine. 
The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karanopoulos. This podcast was produced and recorded by Zara Morali. Music production by Laxman Samantha Mohill. If you liked this podcast, please like and subscribe and review wherever you get your podcasts. Please also check out our website for an associated celiac disease infographic. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon.